Thank you, Springer. And thank you again, all y'all who are helping organize all this stuff. Um, John Ray in particular, thank you so much. We are um, indebted to you. And, uh, and it doesn't help when the guy who started the call for the Zoom call started messing things up 10 minutes before we were on. And then, yeah, you would, you'd be surprised at all the prayer that went on the last three minutes before we came online. And John, you've been great to be with us and help us lead us in this way. So um, what's it supposed to look like? Um, our life together, the kingdom of God, us as citizens of that kingdom. In Romans 12, 13, um, it starts to get real practical. And that's what I love about this part of the book or the letter. Um, until the things, until this far in the book of Romans, you've known this, it's been pretty heavy stuff. There's been um, so many deep theological truths. Um, he's kind of let us peek behind the curtain of, of redemptive history. He's oriented us to the cosmology or the cosmic reality of the reign of mercy and, and uh, not the reign of the law. He's claimed that we're all hidden either in Christ, the second Adam, or the first Adam, either to everlasting life or to our own peril. He's declared the free gospel of grace that says our, our works will never, ever earn a rightness before God, but that Jesus has earned that right for us. And then you get to this Romans 12 and now all the way to 13, 8 and 4 through 14, and it becomes really practical. And I love it so much. Uh, and there's just four things I think that are, that are kind of running through. And it, 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 we'll just run it through like that. It's love your neighbor because now it's time. So stop messing around with all sorts of other stuff and put on Jesus. Um, and so that's what's before us. So we're going to start with um, to love our neighbor. In this day, and in the days that he was living in, to love our neighbor. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He says that all of the law is fulfilled by the simple reality of neighbor love. In fact, he actually speaks about it um, Love, not just as a fulfillment of God's cosmic plan for the world, but but as a debt we owe. He's kind of our Christian bookie, and he's calling our debts, and he's saying, here is the payment. The payment is love. The payment is love of neighbor, and it is to be paid in full. He goes on to repeat several of the Ten Commandments. You should not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet, which means want somebody's stuff. And then he marshals the weight of the book of the law, Leviticus. And he says, the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, that is Jesus's, one of Jesus's favorite summary verses as well. And then he reminds us again that everything he's been talking about so far, about righteousness and the law. And I want you to think back, if you can, to all we've studied in the book of Romans, how often he speaks of the law, how often he speaks in judicial and forensic terms. He talks about the, the, the essentials of holiness and keeping the law, and that we refuse to keep the law, and yet now, and have been, become unable to keep the law, and yet now, under the reign of God's grace, the reign of Jesus, he says that we, in fact, have the power to live differently 
to, to live in a way that fulfills the greatest goal he has for us, which is to fulfill the law. Therefore, it says love is the fulfilling of the law. Let that be breathtaking to you. I dare you to read back through Romans till this point and just be bowled over by the incredible statement that this is, that love of neighbor fulfills the very desire, the very reign, the very love, the very law of God. And in Romans, for goodness sake, that's amazing. Now, as a matter of application, I want to take some time on love and talk about it. Because when I say it, I know what's happening, that we're all conjuring a different kind of thing in our heads. And some of us, it looks a little more hallmarky. And for some of us, it looks a little bit more like it's got to be martyrdom. And those are kind of the extreme versions of those. So I want to make sure you don't confuse love with um. It's not so much imitations, but other things that are often surround love, but they aren't the same thing as love. So the first thing I want you to see is that we don't want to confuse love and truth. Now, it is true that someone that telling someone the truth is, can be an act of love. Speaking truth to power is, can be an act of kindness to the oppressed and to the oppressor. Telling people about the truth about our separation from God and our need to repent, all of those can be done in love. But they can all be done in cruelty or in hate. Love doesn't lie to someone, but love sometimes does remain silent. Truth can be given in love or anger. And sometimes we can use truth to put a shield uh, against someone so that we would avoid our own pain the pain that they might cause us or the pain that they're experiencing that we don't want to feel. Truth, even biblical truth, in fact, especially biblical truth, doesn't stand on its own. It stands or is situated in love. Always. Biblical truth is actually not an idea or a fact. Hear me on this. It's always found in relationship to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the light, who came to bring love to bear as far as the curse is found, and whose love then is transformed into us as the fulfillment of the governing reality, the law of the universe. So truth can be confused with love and it's not that they're separate from each other. They're never together. It's just they're not the same thing. But there's another one that is, that is also difficult for us. And we don't want to confuse love with approval. It is true that love includes hospitality and kindness and encouragement. And love requires patience and long-suffering and gentleness. And love means you'll hold your tongue, even seeing things that are wrong at times. But love doesn't mean you ever can or will endorse evil or wrongdoing. Don't confuse affirmation and kindness or commendation and compassion. Being kind to a person, say, caught in, 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 in white supremacy isn't affirmation of a belief. It's just an act of love. Acceptance and accommodation is not the same thing as affirmation and approval. And we don't want to confuse those things. And I dare you sometime this week to dare you. I mean, I think it'll be a great exercise, a thought exercise, if you will. If you'll, you'll take any of the major um, either social issues or arguments or, or, or 
things going on in our world um, and think about Christian responses to them and see where this intersection of truth and approval get confused with love or love gets confused with those two things and try to trace where truth and approval and love are actually not the same thing, but they're easily confused or blamed for the same thing. I guarantee you it'll be confusing, but if you do so with a level of humility, I think we can learn a lot. So what is love and how does it manifest? I, I'm not, I, I, like, that's what it's not, but, or what it can be confused with, but I'm not trying to be silly here, but I got a Sunday school answer for you here. If we're confused about it, we want to look at our Lord Jesus. He's the one that turned over tables with the whip that he made and also took the whip of 39 times for the sake the ones that were whipping him and for the whole world. See, love looks different than we probably think. It looks more difficult than we can imagine, but we can know that it doesn't take vengeance. It is kind to its enemies. It sacrifices for the sake of others. It never lacks courage or compassion. And according to this, the very fulfillment of the law, the most important thing we can do be because of what we've been made for. I love Augustine here, uh, a bishop from the 400s. He says, disturbers are to be rebuked. The low-spirited to be encouraged. The infirmed to be supported. Objectors to be refuted the treacherous to be guarded against, the unskilled taught, the lazy aroused, the contentious restrained, the haughty repressed, litigants pacified, the poor relieved, the oppressed liberated, the good approved, the evil born with, and all are to be loved. But it's not just the fact that love is the fulfillment of the law. He, he addresses the, a kind of unpanicked urgency about living out this love. And he basically says in verse 11, because now's the time. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Paul is literally telling us to stay woke. Hat tip, Childish Gambino and Eric Badu, Erica Badu before him and others before her. Paul is saying, be aware of the history of the world and the redempted purposes of God in this time. Wake up, he says. Now is the time. God is working and moving and creating space he says that salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And I know this can, that language can be kind of confusing to some of us who grew up in certain circles within Christianity. But Paul believed that since the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, we live in the last days. It's not really a predictive timeline for certain apocalyptic events. It's a de declaration of kind of the life stage of the universe and God's redemptive purposes in the universe. We are in the day or the stage in the era, in the time, the season of grace and salvation. Everything that needs to be done for God to bring 
a rescue to his beloved humanity, all of that has been accomplished. We are now in those last days. And he says, so wake up. Wake up. Now, some nooks and crannies of Christianity like to predict, have, have predicted Jesus' coming, and, and there's a right instinct to this in the, in the sense that there's that right urgency about it. Uh, it is foolhardy because no one can predict the day or the hour, but, but there's something good about that, the urgency. And all it is is to say this, that Jesus has brought the day of salvation to us. He's brought mercy to the world. And so you ourselves come and, and beckon others to come running to his kindness. Day has dawned. Go love on some people. That's what it's saying. The doors of heaven are open to let anyone welcome everyone everywhere. Give yourselves to both abiding in and demonstrating this love that God has for the world. And then he moves on. And this one at first hit me kind of awkwardly. It sounded kind of weird to me because go love people. I got it to fulfill the law. Got it. It's urgent. Got it. And then, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. And it just felt like that was kind of a weird shift for me when I was reading it. Go love in an urgent way. Got it. This is an incredibly great time. Uh, this is the time at hand. But then this list of a bunch of basically sins, specifically around um, sexual or escapist or contentious or ornery kind of sins, seemed a little odd. But then it started hitting me. And frankly, living in Corona land has helped me with this too. By the way, these things, sensuality and divisiveness, were kind of core cultural uh, issues that were in the Roman, in, in Roman culture normal temptations for Roman culture, and frankly, I would say ours is too. But then I realized what he's doing, he's saying, just, just stop messing around with all this other stuff. Stop, stop messing around with, um, with, with all the distractions. And every single one of us gets this because we all have experienced Rona rage and virus vices. Gosh, I wish we could like laugh or something in this Oof, stuff. Um, but, but it's, 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 not, it's, it's funny to call them those things, but it's, it's real. One drunk night isn't going to cut it. Casual sex ain't going to fill you up. Seeking liberated pleasures is folly in a day and age of grace. Our need to fuss about stuff is, is trifling arrogance. And it's all self-gratification and indulgence any, anyway. We want to flee from the viruses, uh, the vi viruses, vices, and quell the Rona rage and just give it a rest. All the stuff that distracts or we escape in, to put it away, to cast it off, it's darkness. Even if it feels good or better at the time. Because rage feels good. And so does sensual pleasure at least for a minute. But, but just pursuing our own pleasure isn't, isn't just a sin. It is madness in an age of grace. This is a day of love and not lust, of peacemaking and not peacebreaking, of finding a cure and not a quarrel. It's not a time for winning an argument, but saving a life. This is not about our sensual pleasures or the justification of our fine sounding arguments, but the salvation of our very lives and our neighbors' lives as well. And so we, it, he just says, stop, <laughs> put it away, cast it off. 
Stop messing around. And I'm speaking from experience, y'all. The days leading up, if you remember to when we started live streaming, were some really hard things that were happening. I found myself in three to five days completely exhausted and tempted in every way to both uh, to fuss and, and have rona rage and vices and tempted in every way with city quarrels and quarrels and foolish arguments to self-gratify, to escape. So much so that two good friends and a very, very good wife noticed and said, hey, they pulled me back, right? And they said, hey, we need all of you. This day is too important. The age of grace is at hand, right? Give yourself to love. To love. They, they, they were right and, they, and, and I was wrong and they gave me the kind of smelling salts to wake up, to re-engage toward a life of love. Self-satisfaction or self-defense are ludicrous in the age of grace. Nothing else will satisfy, so throw it off. And I still am tempted, and so are you, to escape or to enrage. And that's why Paul ends this section the way he does. Love your neighbor, yes, because now is the time. So stop messing around and put on Jesus. Yield to him, abide in him. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14 says, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The apostle simply says, cast off everything else and put on Jesus. Yield to Jesus if he was the most real thing, because he is. As if this is not just about resisting temptation, but to attend to the very source of life. He literally says, put on like clothing. Clothe yourself in Christ. It's like your favorite sweatshirt. Here's my favorite sweatshirt. It is a little over 17 years old. It is, of course, got Davidson on it. There's a hole in the armpit right there. Um, there's a hole back there. There isn't even a collar on it anymore. Um, but you know what? It fits perfectly in all the right places. It's soft in all the places that are necessary. It has rips and holes in it, but that means it's well-worn and well-loved. See, it doesn't even, yeah, see? He's saying, put on the Lord Jesus because it's this comfortable right sweatshirt. He says, friends, I know your ways. Paul says, I know your temptations. I know you'll once again want to escape into the arms of someone you shouldn't have be in arms of or into a food or drink or a drug that's not good for you. I know that you'd rather be distracted in a fine sounding argument than to live in a place of love. And so that's why I'm saying put on Jesus to be clothed in him, rest in him. Look, I, I get it. We all want to have some kind of, like, I'm thinking about fussing now and, and arguing and rona rage. We all want to have some mastery over where we are right now. And, and Jesus isn't offering us having mastery over where we are right now. I know what it's like to get in a good fuss or argument because it feels like you're in a little bit more control. Or that being contrarian or right all the time feels like you have some mastery over the situation or even the pandemic. It is a huge temptation right now to kind of live out of a certain level of certainty and, and I, got, I got everything figured out in my head. Or I even hear pastors and Christian pundits assuming that they're doing good theology because they, they, they're, they're coming with a little bit more trite statements about where we are. We just sometimes can't seem to understand a world in which we don't have incomplete intelligibility, but we don't have complete intelligibility. So let's stop fussing like we do. 
it is an intelligible, it's not an easily intelligible time. Trite platitudes or bumper sticker Bible verses will do more harm than good. What we need is to live out this love because of the great time that it is, cast off everything and put on Jesus. I'm talking to Christians right now. Not, you know, of course we want non-Christians to experience that love too, but you know that we're not, a, we're not holy. We're not, we're not able to love apart from him. It's precisely because we've tasted and seen the goodness of Jesus that we must put him on. We must clothe ourselves. His reign is our safety. His love is our security. Run to, not from him and let him cover you again. Let him cover you again. Always we begin again by his covering. Always we begin again where we always begin in the abiding love of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of a Lord, our King, which means he governs us with his good ways. And he sets the trajectory of our lives. His will, not ours, be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is the anointed one in the Messiah, which means our failure and our folly are not the last word. He loves us more than he hates our sinfulness and our, our silliness in these days. Friends, those of you who are not Christians who may be listening, remind us. And those of you who are Christians, remind us as well. If you see us off track. If you see us without love, would you gently call us back to the one we call Lord? If we are not abiding in this love, clothed in it, then we won't have much to say about it. And certainly we won't be able to live it out in a way that's beautiful. I'm going to end with an Amy Carmichael quotation. For those of you who don't know, she was she ran an orphanage and an escape home for trafficked girls in South India for, I think, almost 60 years or something like that. She gets at these verses really well, but she does it in a, in a way that changes the metaphor from clothing um, to water, to a river. But she's talking about loving well. She says this, recently I was sent a picture of a jug into which water was being poured. The idea was that love is poured into us like that. And then she writes, I don't think of it so at all. I think of the love of God as a river pouring through us as the water pours through a ravine in flood time. Nothing can keep this love from pouring into us and nothing can keep this love from pouring through us except of course, our own blocking of the water. That's the cast off part. Stop messing around with that. Let it flow through. And then she says this, I love this. Do you sometimes feel that you have got to the end of your love for someone who refuses and repulses you? Glad I can't hear amens there. Such a thought is folly, she says. For one cannot come to the end of one of what one has not got. We have no store of love in us. We are not jugs. We are riverbeds who receive this love and send it through. 
So let the river flow, my friends. Don't block it with trivial sin. It's trifling. It's really trifling. Instead, instead abide in the riverbed for the swells of living water will move you to love. In a time when the world and we in our church need it most. Let's pray.